Well, good morning. It's great to be back here at Eastminster. It was such a joy to spend time with session yesterday in a session retreat, and I'm grateful for Pastor Stan's invitation uh, for me to preach here again. Uh, I, I, I'm noticing a lot of red here today. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day to you as well. As Stan said, I, I am from Philadelphia and Session was kind enough to give me some Chiefs gear yesterday, which I am so grateful to wear Super Bowl runner-up gear. I love wearing gear like that. So I, ironically, I will not be watching the game tonight, uh, not because I'm not a fan, I am a big fan, but uh, I will actually be in the air flying to Boston. I did not schedule that flight very well, did I? Uh, but uh, I'm so confident the Eagles are going to win. I don't even need to watch the game, so we'll be fine. It is, however, good. We can be grateful for Mr. and Mrs. Kelsey and the gifts that they have brought to us on both teams. But it is good in all seriousness to know we have the bond of Jesus Christ that's much stronger than any team. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this privilege we have to be able to look at your word. Your word is a gift Help us to see it as such. Help us to have open, expectant hearts that you will teach us, even myself. Lord, I will do my part to get it from my mouth to people's ears, but you do the harder, more important work of getting it from people's ears to people's heads, hearts, and hands. And it's with that that we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it's no secret that we have a mission problem in North America, Uh, not missions, but mission problem. We have forgotten oftentimes as a country that God has invited us to participate and join in with him in his mission for the world. Here's what I mean. A recent poll was done in San Francisco where they were, uh, San Francisco residents were asked, what do Christians do? The top two answers by far were they go to a lot of meetings and they're against a lot of stuff. This is not the mission that God had in store for his people. And this morning, I want us to get a glimpse of the heart of God. And as we get a bigger glimpse of the heart of God, my prayer is that we'll, it will also give us a bigger heart for his mission and how we can join in him as well. This morning, I want to teach you a Greek word, a Greek word called oikos, oikos. Let me hear you say oikos. Oikos, one more time, oikos. Oikos is, uh, I'm not talking about the yogurt brand, by the way. It is a good yogurt, however. But the root of oikos is this idea of house. Actually, our English word economy or economics comes from this word oikos. It's the currency of the house, the common currency. And generally understood, oikos means household or family or sphere of influence, the people that you know. Everyone has an oikos. You have an oikos, I have an oikos. Big or small, seemingly significant or insignificant, you have an oikos. The network of relationships that you have that span throughout your lifetime. Sociologists talk about how we all live in five different neighborhoods. Are you aware of these neighborhoods? You live in a geographical neighborhood, of course, maybe how we best understand the idea of neighbor, the people that live in and around your subdivision or street or road or cul-de-sac or apartment complex. 
You also live in a familial neighborhood. This is your extended family. When you go to a family reunion, that is your familial uh, neighborhood that you live in. You live in a relational network. Those friends that you have, you live in a psychographic neighborhood. That is people that think and act like you do. This could be CrossFit. If you're into CrossFit, you've got a community there. If you're a Mac computer owner, you connect with others. You, if you're a Chiefs fan or an Eagles fan, that's your psychographic neighborhood. I love to swim. I swim three days a week at the Y, and my, uh, my psychographic neighborhood includes people like you know, Carl and Gina and Brendan and Bill and Bob who all swim at the same time with me. I would have no other reason to know them uh, had we not had this shared love for swimming. And of course, you live in a digital neighborhood as well. These are friends you may have not even met in real life or may not see very often, but you feel you know them in some capacity, maybe through LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. And one of the most strategic things that you and I can do with our oikos is to simply take these five neighborhoods and to mark out 10 or 15 or 20 minutes and to just list out everybody that we know in our oikos. I wanna encourage you to think about doing that this week. And what you'll find is you have many more names of people that you know than you think. I wanna pause here on this word oikos and I wanna give you a little bit of background of the passage I'm gonna read in just a moment. Let me give you some biblical background here. Many of you, I, I assume, uh, have been to Israel before. If you haven't been, I wanna encourage you to go. But Israel is only the size of the state of New Jersey. It's a relatively small country. When I lived and studied in college, uh, my roommates and I decided that we would bike across the country, which sounds like a lot, but it took us only two days. Not a very big country, but full of great significance for sure. And the Sea of Galilee, as many of us know, is in the north. It's not really even a sea, but a large lake. In fact, there are times in our Bibles, in the Gospels, where it's called Lake Kinneret. Kinneret is the Hebrew word for harp. It's shaped like a harp, harp lake. 13 miles north to south, eight miles east to west. And this is where Jesus, of course, spent the majority of his time and his lifetime. It's where the disciples grew up, where they saw the majority of Jesus' life and miracles. It's a beautiful place, even to this day. Now the topography of the Sea of Galilee, it sits in a bowl, surrounded by mountains. What happens, storms, they blow in, dip down into the bowl and whip out, causing some tremendously intense storms. But there are two sides to the lake that we need to understand for the story we're about to read. On the western side of the lake was the Jewish side. On the Jewish side, this would be a monotheistic people. They believed in one God, Yahweh which they worshiped in synagogues. They spoke in Hebrew. They kept kosher laws. These are the towns we've heard of, heard of as we read our gospels of Capernaum and Magdala and Bethsaida. This is, this is on the western side of the lake, the Jewish side of the lake. But on the eastern side of the lake, just separated by eight miles of water, the eastern side of the lake is polytheistic. It was a Greek pagan country where they would worship countless amounts of gods, offering sacrifices, they spoke Greek, they did not keep kosher laws, and in this region it's known as the Decapolis, Deca meaning 10, polis meaning cities, the 10 Greek cities of great culture. So just by eight miles of water, you're separated by immense culture, 
Very different, different currency, different language, different worship practices, different worldviews. It would be much like today crossing the Rio Grande River where you'd move from one side to the other, new language, new country, new currency, new laws, new culture. It was a posture that says, you stay on your side of the lake, we'll stay on our side of the lake and we'll just kind of keep it that way. Contextually speaking for today, we might say that the western side of the lake is like eagle's country and the western side would be chief's country. Well, as we explore this passage, as I read it in just a moment, I want to pepper you with a few questions before we begin to read. Questions like, if you were in this story, if you were here when it happened, what would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? How would you react? I want you to also think about the author, Mark. What is it that Mark might want us to see about who Jesus is? And what implications might that have for us as a people here today? So I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at Mark 5 verses 1 through 20. As is the tradition in our church back home in Philadelphia as we stand to read scripture. So I want to encourage you, if you're physically able, would you stand as I read Mark 5 verses 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And when the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
So right there in the beginning, we see they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, not just a geographical trip, but a cultural trip. As I've mentioned before, I've had the privilege of studying in the fall of 1999 uh, in Israel for the semester. I remember being there and seeing this and understanding the cultural differences on this. Even in one of my courses, I wrote a 20-page paper on this one verse of crossing from one side of the lake to the other. Massive cultural differences. And it says that when Jesus got out of the boat, there was a man with an evil spirit that came to him, ran to him, ran at him to meet him. And right away, Mark here wants us to see and to make the connections that this crazed man is about death. Crazed man, incredible strength, no one could bind him, no one could resist him, very self-destructive. Think of the fear that it would strike the community if you knew this man was on the loose. It says night and day, among the tombs and the hills, he would cut himself and he would cry out, he'd cut himself with stones. Parents, this clearly is not the kind of guy that you want your daughter bringing home from college to meet. Can you imagine being a young child trying to go to bed and hearing these shrieks and these screams bouncing off the hills? Trying to comfort your child must have been difficult hearing these shrieks at bedtime. And we see Jesus there and this crazed man runs to him and falls at his feet and at the top of his lungs, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, if you were one of the disciples, And you're watching this unfold. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Are you fearful? The adrenaline pumping through your veins? And that admission, Jesus, son of the most high God. One of the things I love about the book of Mark, Mark is my favorite of the four gospels, but one of the things I love about the book of Mark is the irony that exists. There's immense irony If you read the book of Mark looking for this, it'll catch you off guard. The group that actually understand Jesus' divinity and power most clearly is who? The demons. And the group of people that have the hardest time understanding who Jesus is in the book of Mark is who? His disciples. And we see this over and over and over again. And in verse nine, Jesus does something that very few of us would do in a situation like that. He says, what is your name? He engages with him in conversation. Instead of shunning him or running away or cursing him or being afraid, Jesus asks the crazed man a question. Who are you and what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion. Or he probably says, my name is Legion, you know, or whatever it would sound like. Seems fitting, of course, because legion, military term, means a large group of armed men, showing us one more time how strong this man was. He doesn't just have one dangerous and violent demon in him, he has multiple. In verse 10, it says, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area, not to send the demons out of the area. Beggars are those who are at the mercy of someone else. Someone else is in a higher role or power when you beg for something to happen. The demons understand the authority of Jesus. 
Are you tracking here? This is significant stuff that Mark wants us to notice. And a very interesting detail right there in verse 11 and verse 12. says a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillsides. Now, if you come visit me on the north side of Philadelphia, near us is just five minutes away is a town called Hatfield. And the largest industry on the north side of Philadelphia is Hatfield Quality Meats, which covers all sorts of uh, pig and pork needs that you may have from bacon to something that's called scrapple in and around the Philadelphia area. Pigs everywhere. Oftentimes, you'll, you'll, when you go into Hatfield, you'll, you'll pull in and you'll be at a stop sign and you'll look over and you'll see ginormous trucks filled with countless pigs trying to peek their little nose out of the edge. And we just, my, my kids when they were little began to say, oh, piggy, your life is about to end. So we're used to seeing pigs where we are in the Philadelphia area. But pigs? Why are pigs nearby? Because on the eastern side of the lake, they don't have kosher laws. Jews, even to this day, will stay away from pork due to some Old Testament laws as they read. The unclean animals, a pig was an unclean animal. Who knows if the disciples had ever been around or spent much time around pigs. That's why pigs are on the eastern side of the lake. It's Greek country, it's pagan country, it's not kosher. They don't care. And the man asked, would you send us into the pigs? And Jesus gave them permission, permission, another indication of authority. They run into the water. Can you imagine seeing that sight? 2,000 pigs running, possessed, squealing, screaming off the edge of a cliff and dying. Can you imagine seeing thousands of hooves upside down, bobbing and bouncing in the Sea of Galilee? By the way, if you're a pig farmer, you lost a lot of money that day. That's a lot of your livelihood that's dead and bobbing in the water. Now, we don't have time to go into this a great deal, but in the first century, there was something called the abyss. They believed that demons lived in the abyss, and they believed, Jewish people believed, that the abyss was at the bottom of bodies of water. So when a storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee and they see Jesus coming, what do they say? It's a ghost. Why? Because they believe the demons have agitated the storm in the water. So by the way, where did the pigs run to? Not up the hill, not in the other direction, but to the water. Why? Because in Greek or in Jewish thought, the demons are returning to the abyss. Very interesting detail Mark gives us here. In verse 15, it says, now that the man is sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and, and they were all afraid. What a turn of events. They must have been thinking, who is this stranger from the other side of the lake visiting us where stuff like this happens? What a day. And then in verses 17 and 18, it says, and they begged Jesus to leave the region. And in great submission, he obliged them. 
He listens to their requests. He didn't have to, but he gets in the boat. And verse 18, and this is where the story turns. This is where I want us to pay attention for a few minutes here. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, but Jesus did not let him. Why? Why? I mean, wouldn't this be perfect? You're trying to bring about good news in a new region and a new culture and a new area. You could bring him with you and say, if you don't believe my message, don't take my word for it. Listen to this man's story about who he was and how I brought about dramatic healing and deliverance for him. But Jesus instead says, no. Is Jesus being mean? Is he holding a grudge? No. Look at verse 19. Jesus said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Do you know what that word for family is? Oikos. Go home to your household. Not just your mom and dad and brothers and sisters. Go home to your sphere of influence. All the people that know you. The five neighborhoods that you live in. Go home and tell your sphere of influence, the people who knew you, who who know of you today, who know the struggles that you've had, go home and tell them all the things the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he's had on you. And it says in verse 20, so the man went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. There's another theme of Mark. Circle every time you see the word amazed or amazement or astonished or astonishment in the book of Mark. It's everywhere. The people are amazed. There are two things that Mark really wants us to see here, to understand in this story. And the first one is that discipleship is on Jesus' terms, not ours. Every time someone asks Jesus if they could follow him, Jesus says no. Or Jesus made the stakes so high that a person couldn't do it. But Jesus was always asking others to follow him. Why? He wants to know, will you submit and surrender to me and my purposes for your life? Or are you still going to keep your agenda intact? Jesus wants us to follow him on his terms, not on the ones that we set. And the second thing is this idea of oikos. Go home to your oikos and tell them all the things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus isn't being mean. Jesus is being strategic. He understood the man's oikos. The Greek man on the eastern shore goes to a Jewish land on the western shore. Where would he have the most influence? Probably in the place where he has always been. The most significant part of the story is what happens after the story. A few pages to the right in the book of Mark, the next time Jesus returns back to the eastern Greek side of the lake, he gets off the boat and he's mobbed like a rock star. Why? Because the man did his job. He took his oikos seriously like Jesus challenged him to do. I love 
I love the amazing impact that Eastminster has regarding missions. Locally, nationally, around the world. I love it. In fact, the Go Encounter, I wish I were in town. I think that's a fantastic uh, opportunity. I'm so grateful for the missions that you all have. And in the midst of all this, I want to encourage you all, I want to challenge you all to not lose sight of the opportunity that's right under your noses. Continue to do missions overseas. Pursue that with a great passion. That is a gift that God has entrusted to you all as a church. But don't forget the oikos that's right under your nose. The neighborhoods that you live in right now, right here in Wichita. To the ends of the world, to the ends of the road, and to the end of the pew. Your oikos, your sphere of influence, of already existing relationships is the most fertile ground for God to do work in and through you. You might be tempted to say, I'm not a pastor. I've never been to seminary. I don't know any Greek or Hebrew words. Doesn't matter because the person living inside of you, this Holy Spirit, is all that you need when we fully submit to be used to do what Jesus told that man to do. Just go tell them your story. Just tell them the grace and mercy that he's had on you. Just tell them that story. Do you realize that you have more influence in your spheres of influence than any of the pastors do at this church? Not because they're bad pastors, but because they don't have the relationships that you already have. Your business relationships, your friendships, those that you know at school, those that you know you graduated from school with, those in your neighborhood, those are immensely powerful once you understand how many people you have in your oikos. Well, I've been up to the site where scholars believe this story in Mark 5 actually happened. It's near a, a little archaeological place called Hippus. Hippus. Hippus is where we get our word horse from because it looks like a big horse saddle. And it's the place on the eastern side of the lake where there's a cliff where they believe that all those pigs ran down and off over the cliff into the water. Wouldn't you love to see that, by the way? I just... I would long to see a, a video clip of that story happening, of those pigs falling off the cliff. But I remember being there, and it was toward the end of my semester. I loved my time in Israel so much that I actually was making plans to stay. I didn't want to go home. I had such a transformative experience. I wanted to stay there. I was going to be a, a tour guide, maybe get my master's at the school and continue there. But I sensed as we read this story, the Lord saying to me, no, 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 JR, go home to your family and tell them all the things the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he's had on you while you've been here in Israel. I felt like that was my commissioning to go home. I was just telling Pastor Stan, this is a significant moment in my journey as a pastor and as a Christian was being sent back home to my oikos. Well, I went to school in North Central Indiana, uh, Taylor University, and uh, my grandfather lived just a few hours away. Now, my mother became a Christian when she was 12 or 13 years old. Uh, she would walk to church by herself because her parents were not uh, into faith. And uh, anytime faith or religion over the last several decades was brought up with uh, my grandfather, he would always become angry and irritated. He'd raise his voice, he'd stand up and he'd storm out of the room and say, we're not gonna talk about this. My mom prayed for decades that my grandfather would come to know Christ. 
Well, my grandfather, when I got back home a few weeks after returning home from Israel, he said, hey, why don't you come? Uh, let's hang out. Come, come for the weekend. So it was a couple hour drive. And before throwing in my duffel bag and my backpack, I thought, you know, maybe I should throw in my album of my pictures from my trip to Israel, just in case he might be interested. So I threw them in. On the last day, we had a couple hours before I was to drive back on Sunday afternoon, and I said, Grandpa, um, would you like to see my pictures? And he said, sure. So I'm flipping through the pictures and sensing and remembering the Mark 5 passage. As we looked at the pictures, I, I closed the albums and I said, Grandpa, do you know why Israel was so transformative for me? He said, no, I've, I've wondered why. And I said, it's because it's helped me understand the person of Jesus even more. I'm waiting for my grandfather to push his chair back from the dining room table and stand up and say, we're not gonna talk about it. But he leaned in and said, say more. My heart began to race and began to open up more and more to say, this is why Jesus is so important to me. This is why it's been so transformative. This is why Israel is important. My heart started racing some more and I said, Grandpa, this isn't just limited to me. It's also open to everybody, including you. Grandpa, is this something that you would want to enter into? This grace and mercy of Jesus who loves you and can set you free. And one of the greatest moments of my life is to be able to see my grandfather bow his head, come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I called my mom on the way home, who had been praying for 30 years at that point. I said, Mom, you'll never believe what God did. And then it hit me. Go home to your family. Tell them all the things the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he's had on you. What would it look like if we became the kinds of followers of Jesus on his terms, not ours, who sought out and prioritized our oikos as our mission field? The boardroom, the classroom, the playroom, the living room, that's your oikos. And what would it look like if you took your mission field more seriously and thought about it more strategically than you ever have before? We like to say at our church that every Christian is a missionary cleverly disguised as a good neighbor. A missionary cleverly disguised as a teacher, a stay-at-home mom or dad, a bread truck delivery driver, an attorney, a nurse. A missionary cleverly disguised as a good neighbor. Maybe the most strategic thing that you can do in thinking like a missionary cleverly disguised as a resident of Wichita is to draw that diagram of your five neighborhoods. Ironically, you know what group of people does this better than anybody else? The Mormons. What do they do? They equip each of their young adults with a backpack, a Bible, and a map of their neighborhood and send them out. Fascinating. I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't say to his disciples, you know what, we're gonna stay on our safe side we're not gonna go over, there are a bunch of pagans over there and they do a bunch of things we don't do, so we're just gonna stay on our side of the lake. 
I'm so grateful that Jesus went there just as he calls all of us to go to the ends of the earth. But I'm also grateful he didn't say yes to the man to have him jump in the boat and come back on the other side. He said, stay where you are, bloom where you're planted, tell your story of the people that already know you. What a God. What if instead of being afraid of the darkness, we took the light to those in the dark pockets here right in our own city, right within this sphere of influence that you have? You may not interact with people who are strong and ripping chains because they're possessed by a demon, but it may be someone you would never normally hang out with. Maybe it's someone that you know that you say, wow, Lord, would you give me opportunities to be able to talk about the story of the grace and mercy that I've been able to receive from you? What would it look like if you took your oikos seriously And what if we together in joyful obedience and trust follow Jesus on his terms and not on ours? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this dramatic, intense, sometimes confusing story, sometimes humorous, but very strategic to help us understand your mission. Lord, I pray that there would be people not just in San Francisco, but around the world that when asked, what do Christians do that they don't answer and say they go to a lot of meetings and they're against a bunch of stuff. But instead that they would say, they're a group of people that have told us about the grace and mercy of Jesus in existing relationships we already have. Lord, help us to take our oikos seriously. Thank you for taking us seriously in your oikos and living out freedom among us. It's your name that we pray, amen, amen.